Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. But um, among all that, there was um, a lot of philosophy being taught, a lot of pagan religions. There was a lot of idol worship. And Paul only got to be in Thessalonica for uh, three weeks, three Sabbaths. And in that time, he presented the gospel to them, and many people believed. But because of persecution, he was forced to leave and was unable to return. He sent Timothy back to check on the church, and Timothy brought back a report, and he wrote 1 Thessalonians. Then after that, he got another report, and he wrote 2 Thessalonians. These two books were, are probably the second of Paul's writings, his first being Galatians. So in this area, there was a lot of idol worship. There were some problems in the church that we'll talk about, and uh, our message today is reasons to hope. Let's look at verse 13 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. Notice that Paul starts out here with the word but. That signifies a transition, that he is changing topics. So we have to refer back to some of the previous verses to completely understand what he is conveying. In verse 9 of that chapter, Paul had been teaching the church about the coming of the Antichrist. As I said, there were some problems in this church, and because of the persecution that had arisen, many folks had begun to believe that they had missed the rapture of the church and were living in the Great Tribulation. Many were in turmoil because loved ones had passed away and they thought Jesus has come and what has happened to our loved ones. Uh, So Paul is telling uh, in verse 9 of the same chapter about this Antichrist that's coming, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, whose working will be after the power of Satan. He'll have supernatural power to perform all kinds of miracles He will be handsome. He will uh, be able to do lying wonders and signs. Uh, The world is going to fall for him and swoon for him. And Paul says this great deception that's coming on the world, that's coming on these people, is because they did not believe the truth. They had pleasure in unrighteousness and refused to accept Jesus. Now, God is a perfect gentleman. If you don't want him, he'll let you have what you do want. And he will let you reject him. They did not believe the truth, and so they will believe the deception. These people will love their lifestyles more than the truth. And we already see some of that today. We see that the church is compromised in many denominations on what we know to be the solid gospel. They reject Jesus, so God lets them receive the deception. And there's already a push for that in our world today. But the last two years, we've seen some crazy times, haven't we? We've seen some uh, a push for a one-world government and a one-world religion. If, if your head's not in the sand, you, you see the, that everywhere. 
In John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus said this, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Jesus also prophesied about this Antichrist. Jesus told us this very thing was going to happen, and so Paul is also repeating it. People will reject him and gladly receive a false Messiah because they love not the truth. Now, that's where Paul had been talking. He'd been talking about these people who won't receive the truth, who love their lifestyle, who reject Jesus, who say, well, you know, Jesus is not the only way to heaven. There's lots of good ways to heaven, you know. And we, we hear that we hear that today, don't we? We hear Oprah pushing that, that mantra. So now Paul says, but he's di- differentiating between those people who do not love the truth, who will reject Christ, and the church in Thessalonica. He said, you people, we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Now, bound means constrained, compelled, obligated, or indebted to give thanks. Now, had I been Paul, I would have probably said, hey, you knuckleheads. Because if you'll remember in our previous studies about these people, they, because of idol worship, you know, they practiced sexual immorality. There were temple prostitutes. There was all this sexual immorality in the worship of false gods. And because some of these Christians had been converted out of that from false gods, they were tempted by sexual immorality. There were some who said, Jesus is coming, is so imminent, I'm just not going to work. Why should I bother working? Besides, besides, there's Junior. He's got lots of money. I'm just going to sponge off of him. He can keep me up. This was what was going on. This was some of the stuff that was going on. So why Paul didn't say, hey, you knuckleheads? But notice the love of Paul here. He says, he says, I'm bound. I'm obligated. I'm indebted to give thanks for you. The Amplified Bible puts it this way. But we should and are morally obligated as debtors always to give thanks to God for you. Why would Paul say that? These people, this was a messed up bunch of people. It's often been said, if you're looking for the perfect church, don't go there because you're going to mess it up. (laughs) This church was not perfect. They had been saved from idol worship, and they were struggling with these things. They were convinced of Jesus' imminent return. Some didn't want to work. Some were grieving because they thought they'd missed the rapture. And there was great persecution. They were being persecuted. But you know what they were doing? They were loving one another. They were preaching the gospel. They were testifying that Jesus had delivered them. So they had some good things going on. So Paul was not looking for perfection. He was looking for progress. And there was great progress in this church. Again, if it would have been us, we might have said, instead of Paul, we might have said, hey, you guys need to straighten up. But Paul says he's obligated, he's bound, he's constrained to give thanks for these people. Why? Let's look at the next verse there. He says, because you're a beloved of God. You know, it's easy for us. We're, we're, we're a big dysfunctional family. If you grew up in a dysfunctional family, which I'm pretty sure most all of us did, your siblings get on your nerves, don't they? They just tick you off and you just fight and you fuss and you quarrel. I know my grandkids do. And... and the church is kind of like that. We're dysfunctional too. We get on each other's nerves. It's easy to find fault, isn't it? It's easy to nitpick and say, well, you know, this and that, and look at people's faults. But you know what? 
these people are beloved of God. You are beloved of God. Who am I to criticize and to nitpick you when you are beloved of God? He says, because the second thing he says here, the reason he's obligated, is because God has chosen you from the beginning. Not because you can add anything to his kingdom. Not because you have any real redeeming qualities or that you're especially wonderful. But because he, God, has chosen you. You might think, well, I'm here because I want to be. Well, not really. Jesus said none would come to him unless the Father drew them. You, don't, you didn't come to Jesus in your life because, hey, you just sit down and did some kind of formula and said, hey, it kind of makes sense for me to do this. No, the Holy Spirit worked in your heart. The Holy Spirit drew you to Jesus. If the Holy Spirit didn't draw you to Jesus, you wouldn't be drawn to him. And so Paul says, we, we've got to give thanks for you because you're beloved of the Lord and God has chosen you. Now, who am I to question why God chose you? You might get on my nerves. But who am I to judge what God has chosen? He is God and I am not. If we remember this one thing, it'll change our attitude in the church. If we remember that these people that we worship with, that we work with, that we fellowship with, they are chosen by God. They are His. And, so, and suddenly, instead of focusing on what irritates us about a person, then we begin to pray for them and thank God for them. Paul is constrained to be thankful for them because God chose them. But when did God choose them? He says from the beginning. Now, I don't know if that means before he said, let there be light. Did he look down through time? You see, God's not limited by time. He's eternal. He sees the end from the beginning. He is, his ways are so much higher than our ways. I don't know if he stood above time and looked down through history and said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send my son for Tony or I'm going to send my son for Sam or Blaine. I don't know if it was before he said let there be light or if it was before he created the earth and separated the land from the sea or if it was just before he created Adam and Eve. But the Bible says he chose you from the beginning. You see, in the mind of God, before we even fell, before sin came into the world, he already had planned to sacrifice his son for you. And if he thinks of you that highly, how can I not give thanks for you that he has chosen you from the beginning? Not only did God choose you from the beginning, but he had a purpose in choosing you. Notice that next portion of scripture. It says he chose you for salvation. To save you from sin, from self, from hell, and the power of darkness. Remember what Jesus said about Satan? He called him a thief. He comes but to kill, steal, and destroy. God chose you for salvation. But how is he accomplishing that? Is it just like a magic wand and poof? One day you're a, you're a dirty sinner and the next day you're just like Jesus? No. He is making you, he is saving you through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. You see, that's the way God always works. 
the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And about verse 7, he says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, Jesus is the living Word of God. Our Holy Bible is the written Word of God. And that's how the Holy Spirit is sanctifying and preparing you for God's kingdom. Through the Holy Spirit and His Word. He transforms us this way. Remember I told you early in this Bible study that true Christianity consists of three things. A personal relationship with Jesus sound doctrine, and a changed life. If you don't have one of those three legs, it's not genuine Christianity. There are churches out there that have sound doctrine. Maybe they've even shown some signs of a changed life, but they don't have a real personal relationship with Jesus. Or they claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus, but not a changed life. So it's not true. But there's even more. Not only has he, he chosen you for salvation, but look at verse 14. He says, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he chose you. He chose you for the, from the beginning. He chose you for a purpose that you could be saved. And then he says he, he chose you to the obtaining of glory. The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He counts us as his glory. Those who he has bought with his blood. Ephesians chapter 1.14 puts it this way. Who, which is the Holy Spirit. Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. To the praise of his glory. He's saying here in this scripture that the Holy Spirit is a deposit that guarantees our inheritance until he finishes his redemption of us. Romans 8.17 says this. That if we are children of God. Then we are heirs. We are heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him. We may also be glorified with him. You see John said it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that we shall be like him. We shall see him in all his glory. If you think about the resurrected Jesus, he did some pretty amazing things. He walked through walls. He was able to transport himself from one spot to another almost instantaneously. He was not limited by time, space. He had no longer, no longer had need of food, but yet he could eat. Paul says we're going to share in his glory. He counts us as his glory. Romans 8, 17 in the New Living Translation says this, And since we are his children... We are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Therefore, because he's chosen you, he's chosen you for salvation, he's chosen you to be sanctified through his spirit and the truth, and he has chosen you for glory. These are reasons for hope. Now he's, Paul changes the subject a little bit, and he says, because of all these things, you need to stand fast. 
Now, in our day and age, it's, it's kind of hard to stand fast when you're bombarded with lies and deception every day on the media, in the news, in Hollywood, in entertainment. It's like my wife said last week, you know, when we sang the special about the name of Jesus, you don't ever, ever hear anybody hit your thumb and take Buddha's name in vain, do you? You don't ever hear anybody slam the car door on their hand and, and say, Hare Krishna. <laughs> you ever thought about that? That was a good point. But Paul's saying we need to stand fast to the traditions we have received. What are those traditions? He says by the written word and even by the things that he told them when he was physically with them. The Bible. We need to stand fast, read our Bible, believe our Bible, live our Bible. That's what Paul's saying. And then he closes with a prayer. Paul says, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you and every good word and work. You see, so many times we get that backwards. We want to focus on being working hard. We want to focus on our good works when we really need to focus on Him. He will produce the good works if we listen to the Spirit, if we fill our hearts with His Word. He'll change us. It's an ongoing process. He is changing us daily. He says, come for your hearts. He will come. He, he asks that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our Father who has loved us, would give us everlasting consolation. We have an everlasting consolation because you know what? Everything you see around you is going to pass away someday. The only thing that's going to last is the eternal things, what we've done for Jesus. What's the old saying? Only one life soon will be passed. Only, all, all, only what's done for Jesus is the things that will last. You see... There's an eternal kingdom out there, and God has chosen you for it. He's preparing you for it through the Holy Spirit and His Word. And Paul says that's our everlasting consolation. No matter how bad it gets here, this is the worst we'll ever have it. And for those who reject Jesus, this is as good as it's ever going to get. As we studied before, once you die, there is a judgment coming. There's a day when Jesus returns when people will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity without God. So Paul says, comfort your hearts with this word. Comfort your hearts with the fact that you are chosen, that you are different. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 in the Amplified Bible puts it this way. For it is not your strength, but it is God who is effectively at work in you, both to will and to work, that is, strengthening, energizing, and creating in you the longing and the ability to fulfill your purpose for his good pleasure. There's a lot in that verse right there. He says it's not your strength. It's God who is working in you. This is a reason for hope this morning. God is working in you. It's not only is he working in you it says it, he's working in you to create the will. 
Do you know you wouldn't even have any desire for Jesus? You wouldn't have any desire to be here this morning? You wouldn't have any desire to live for God unless he gave it to you. That's how lost and depraved we are. That's what sin did to us. That's how warped we became because of the fall. But he says, it's God that gives you the strength. It's God that gives you the will. It's God that gives you the desire. He's the one strengthening you. He's the one energizing you. And he's creating in you this longing to fulfill his purpose. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like that old, I think it was the Rambo sang that song. I'm getting homesick for a city. You get tired of the hurt, the pain, and the anger, and all the tragedies in this world. I'm looking for a day. I long for a day. And it's real. It's not pie in the sky and the great by and by. As surely as Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies in his first coming. 300. To the T. There are more prophecies about his second coming in the Bible than that. And he will fulfill every one of them. He is coming back. It is God that works in us to create the longing and the ability to fulfill his purpose. You see, God has called you for a purpose. God chose you from the beginning. He's called you for a purpose. He's he's sanctifying and changing you through his word and his Holy Spirit because someday he is returning. In 2 Peter 2, verse 9, in the English Standard Version Bible, it says this, But you, you, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You may say this morning, I don't feel like that. that that's really high up there. Who are you to argue with God? Stand on what he says, not what the devil whispers in your ear when he tries to bring up your past, when he points out every failure in your life. If there is a failure, say, Jesus, forgive me of that and move on. Don't take his guff because this is God's opinion of you this morning. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Are you holy because of what you did? No. You're holy because of what he did. That little baby that we celebrated yesterday, born in the manger, the only one whose blood could take away our sin, our depravity, and our lost condition. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You see, that's all God's ever wanted. All those stories in the Old Testament, what did he want from the Israelites? He wanted a people of his own. And he's gone to extremes to, to acquire it. He sent his only son to a cruel cross. That's how bad he wants it. That's how bad he wants you this morning. So we have reason for hope. Our world may be falling apart. There are 100,000 troops on the border of Ukraine. Russia may be ready to start a war. China's rattling sabers about taking Taiwan. Who knows what Iran's cooking up? Who knows what... Kim Jong-un is cooking up, maybe a nuclear strike. Just last week they caught a 
known terrorist in Arizona sneaking across the border, our borders wide open, our country's in shambles, but we have reason for hope because we are a chosen people. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare praises of him who called you out of darkness to his wonderful light. 2022 is upon us. You have reason to hope because your God has chosen you. He's gone to extreme measures to purchase you. He is working in you. To create the desire and the strength to perform his calling on your life. There is a calling on your life. And he wants to fulfill it. Will you surrender? Let's stand. Father, we thank you for your word. It's so easy to get confused in this world. It's so easy because we are barraged with lies and deception on every hand. It's so good that you've given us your word, that you have chosen us, that you desire us for your people, for your own. And we look forward to what you'll do with us in this year coming. We surrender our lives to you this morning anew and afresh. We ask you, Jesus, come in, save us, forgive us. Mold us, make us into your image. Mold us into the people that you want us to be. You've called us to be a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And we ask you to perform that in each of these lives here this morning, Father. You know each one of these souls, they're precious in your sight. And we lift them up to you. We pray for them. We ask you to complete the job. Just as surely as you have begun it, you've promised that you would complete it. And we're comforted by that this morning. We're consoled by that promise that we are not alone. That our king is returning. Just as you, we celebrated your entry into time and, and history almost 2,000 years ago. We know that you're coming back. And we just pray, Father, that you fill your people with this hope and this comfort. Take away this, whatever trials and heartaches that they are facing, Lord. We pray that you'd lift them and focus their eyes on the consolation, on the Redeemer, on the soon coming King. And for all that you do, we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.